0: Venidos. Welcome to City Breaks Seville, Episode twelve, in which we're going to have a look at some of the things which travel writers across the centuries have had to say about Seville. First I'm going to feature some short quotations from a range of writers who visited the city over the centuries, and then for the main part of the episode we're going to look at five different writers who wrote full length books, none of them actually specifically about Seville, all of them more generally about Spain, but in which There are whole chapters on the city, looking at it from a variety of different aspects. So, travel writers then, some few short quotations. Start with Jan Morris, writing in the early 60s, who sets the scene and explains how southern Spain is so very different from anywhere else in the middle or in the north of the country. She writes this. The castanets click from coast to coast. The cicadas hum through the night. The air is heavy with jasmine and orange blossom. Doesn't that make you just want to get straight on a plane and write down there? Somebody else who went didn't go by plane, not least because he was writing in the 1870s. The Italian journalist, novelist, travel writer Edmondo de Amici, who wrote this lovely paragraph about arriving in Seville by boat, surely a much more romantic and perhaps fitting way for such a famous port city to arrive. If you don't want to pack your suitcase straight away after hearing this, then you have a different mindset from mine, that's all I can say. Okay. so he wrote, The ship glided with the ease of a gondola over the quiet and limpid waters, which reflected like a mirror the white dresses of the ladies. And the air brought us the odour of oranges from the groves on the shore, peopled with villas. Seville was hidden behind its girdle of gardens, and we could see only an immense mass of very green trees. Above them, the black pile, the cathedral. And the giralda, all rose colour, surmounted by its statue, flaming like a tongue of fire. Do try and remember that if you do go on a boat trip. I don't know much about the next author I'm going to quote, but I think he must have been a man after my own heart, because way back in nineteen o three he published a book called Cities, and it's from his entry on Seville that I'm going to read a lovely, enticing paragraph, which will also, I'm sure, make you want to head straight there. His name is Arthur Simons. And this is what he wrote. Seville, more than any city I have ever seen, is the city of pleasure. It has the constant brightness, blitheness and animation of a city in which pleasure is the chief end of existence, and an end easily attained, by simple means, within everyone's reach. It has sunshine, flowers, an expressive river, orange groves, palm trees, broad walks leading straight into the country, Beautiful ancient buildings in its midst, shining white houses, patios and flat roofs, vast windows, everything that calls one into the open air and brings light and air to one and thus gives men the main part of their chances of natural felicity. It is concentrated and yet filled to the brim. A passage to lift the spirits, I think, about a city, which in my experience is also one which lifts the spirits. But before we get too carried away, I'd like to quote... Augustus Hare, who wrote a book called Wanderings in Spain in 1873, in which he requoted—I guess that's the 19th-century version of retweeting—the phrase which people use about southern Spain, Andalusia in particular, namely that it is quote, the oven of Spain. So, if you're not good in the heat, and I'm recording this on what might be going to turn out to be the hottest day ever, 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 apparently, if that's not your thing, then I would advise you don't go in the summer. 40 degrees. Quite a frequent occurrence, I believe, moving on to one Lord Byron writing in eighteen nineteen i'm going to quote something which has again been requoted so many times about Seville, mainly because it's really rather dismissive. He described it as being the city of quote, oranges and women. but I'm going to read the three lines anyway they're from his introduction to the poem Don Juan, and I quite like them apart from the dismissiveness about the women because they are a reworked version of that quotation about if you haven't seen Seville, you've missed out on something wonderful. So this is what he wrote. In Seville was he born, a pleasant city, famous for oranges and women. He who has not seen it will be much to pity. We'll be discussing Don Juan again in the next episode, but I'm sure you already know that he was famously a womaniser, as indeed was Byron himself. So here are a few lines in which he took it upon himself firstly to describe the beauty of the Spanish women whom he saw when he was in Seville, but, by way of an aside, to dismiss all the women back home who perhaps weren't quite that lovely. So he wrote about their, quote, Long black hair, dark languishing eyes, clear olive complexions, and forms more graceful in motion than can be conceived by an Englishman used to the drowsy, listless air of his countrymen. Do recall, please, that Lord Byron was described as being mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And so I quite enjoyed the next few lines also about Spanish women, in which he perhaps implies that he did actually meet his match in one or two of them. Like to think that one or two of them stood up to him and spoke back. Anyway, he's settled in Seville, he's lodging in a house, and this is how he describes the landladies. We lodged in the house of two Spanish unmarried ladies, women of character. The freedom of women which is general here, astonished me not a little, and in the course of further observation, I find that reserve is not characteristic of the Spanish bell. I'd love to know what the further observation involved, and I'd love to know who stood up to him, and in what way. Rah, rah, good for them. So, just to finish, one last short quotation, again from Jan Morris, who is writing this time about that underlying, mournful, rather haunting soul of the city that somehow seems to be present amid all the beauty. It also nicely expresses the idea that as soon as you're in Seville, you're surrounded by such a mix of cultures. She writes, Often there hangs upon the evening the sad but florid strain of cante Hondo, the deep song, part Oriental, part Gregorian, part Moorish, part Jewish, that the gypsies have made the music of the South. So, moving on then to our five travel writers. Just briefly, they are Richard Ford, his handbook for travellers in Spain, dating from the 1830s. Laurie Lee, I'm going to make brief mention of two of his books, A Rose for Winter, which I think I've quoted a few times already, and the earlier one, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Then there's Jason Webster, who wrote a book called Andalus, in which he describes travelling through Spain in search of something very specific, namely the country's Arabic heritage, which he finds in all sorts of different ways, buildings, language, customs, attitudes, an interesting read. Also there's Death in the Sun by Edward Lewin, who again had a very interesting take on a travel writing book in Spain because he attached himself to a matador and his entourage and spent a year travelling to and fro across Spain with them. So again, you get a very different view of Spanish culture through that lens. And lastly, P.D. Murphy, who published in 2014 a book called As I Walked Through Spain in Search of Laurie Lee. So as you can tell from the title, it's part travelogue, part homage to Laurie Lee, with bits and pieces extra along the way. All five of these books are not specific to Seville, or indeed Andalusia. They're people who travelled, in some cases, the length and breadth of the country. But they're very instructive anyway, great on atmosphere, And I've tried to pick out bits and pieces which do pertain particularly to Seville. So, starting then with Richard Ford and his Handbook for Travellers in Spain, a volume, actually two quite chunky volumes, published in the 1830s after he'd spent three years on a trip of two thousand miles where he took himself on horseback across Spain and then wrote about it. One version of the book was published or republished in the 1950s in which he'd had a foreword written by the then British ambassador to Spain, Sir John Balfour, who wrote that, quote, his learned and often wittily expressed disquisitions on such varied topics as cooking and clothing, dances, music, bullfighting, religious processions and church architecture, were all reasons for enjoying the book. And he did also mention in passing that he thought these excursions, as he called them, involved, quote, hardships which few persons would nowadays endure. I think Richard Ward is occasionally a little bit grumpy and you do have to remember what he was doing, riding across Spain on a horse. But mixed in with his opinions, you do also get lots and lots of information about Spanish culture, there's little facts. At one point, for example, he's in the area of Santa Cruz where Murillo, the painter, used to live. He tells you exactly how to find the house. Go to the end, he says, the last house on the right in a small plaza at the end of Calejuela del Agua. He tells you that the parish church, which Murillo used to visit and where he was buried, had been pulled down by the French who, as he puts it, scattered his bones. He tells you about the top floor of the house, which is, has the room in it where Murillo used to do his painting. Now decorated, in fact, with paintings largely by other people. And Richard Ford to a T, he doesn't think much of these. He describes the man who set the room up as being, quote, a man of taste who had a collection of many and bad pictures. This quality was no fault of his, for where good ones are not to be procured, bad become the best. He lets his imagination take flight, looks round the area, and begins to think, what a typical scene from a Maria painting, in fact, the actual area is. So this is what he writes, It is a barrack of washerwomen. What a scene for the artist. What costume, balconies, draperies, colour, attitude, grouping. What a carrying of vases after the antique. What a clatter of female tongues, a barking of dogs, a squalling of children, all Murillo's, will assail the impertinente curioso. He's absolutely never short of an opinion. A bit later on in the book, he's describing oranges, gives you lots of facts about exactly how long they need to be stored for and how they're shipped to Britain to be made into marmalade, when you should pick them, how much you can expect to get for them, how long the voyage will take, etc, etc. Then he adds a little bit about how he's noticed that the Spanish themselves don't eat these particular oranges and he puts it like this. The natives are very fanciful about eating them. They do not think them good before March and poison if eaten after sunset. The vendors in the street cry them as más dulces que bar, sweeter than syrup. So you get facts, you get opinions, you get little bits of Spanish thrown in. Definitely a read to be recommended. Moving on then to the second author I've chosen. Laurie Lee, who wrote not one but two books which have a lot to say about Seville and Andalusia in general. We've quoted quite a lot already from the one called A Rose for Winter, which he wrote in the 1950s. That in fact was his second visit to the area, recalling really what he'd learnt and what he'd seen on his first visit, which had been 15 or 20 years earlier in the 1930s, in the run-up in fact to the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. At that stage, he was a young man of about 20, on his first adventure abroad. He describes, in the very first page of the book, leaving his Gloucestershire village, waving his mum goodbye, walking off towards London in search of an adventure. The first third or so, I think, of the book is him in London, working on a building site, trying to earn enough money to just get by. And then he decides more adventure would be a good thing. So he gets on a boat to Spain, gets off at Vigo and... The rest of the book is his journey on foot around Spain, all the places he visited, people that he met, tales of his violin busking, which he was using to pay his way a little bit. And one of the sentences in the book that really stuck in my mind, I think because it sums up the romance of Seville and the fact that you've probably heard of it and got ideas about it before you ever get anywhere near it. I find it interesting that a little boy who grew up in the Gloucestershire countryside in the beginning of the twentieth century even he had heard about seville and had felt the pull of its romance calling to him this is what he writes as he's approaching the city ever since childhood i'd imagined myself walking down a white dusty road through groves of orange trees to a city called seville and of course you're absolutely expecting that as he approaches it won't live up to his picture of it which in fact is sort of right and yet sort of not right because it was immediately very appealing to hear are the few lines that follow on just from that bit I've just read. In fact, there was no white road, not even a gold-clustered orange tree. But Seville itself was dazzling, a creamy crustacean of flower-banked houses fanning out from each bank of the river. The Moorish occupation had bequeathed the affection for water, around which so many of even the poorest dwellings were built. A thousand miniature patios, set with inexhaustible fountains, which fell trickling upon ferns and leaves, each a nest of green repeated in endless variations around this theme of domestic oasis. It's absolutely, however, not only romance and beauty. On the very next page, he explains that Seville was no paradise. He writes about the children and beggars he saw sleeping outside. He uses the words disease and filth. He talks about ragged little girls with thin brown arms. And he's particularly detailed on what he found in Triana, so he obviously crossed the river to that poorer area of the city himself and, as he puts it, lived there on fruit and dried fish and slept in a yard somewhere in the ramshackle collection of tumble-down houses that was Triana in those days. This is what he writes to describe the hubbub that met him when he got there. Quote, in my day, it still had a seedy vigour full of tile-makers and free-range poultry, of medieval stables bursting with panniered donkeys squabbling wives and cooking pots, stately cockerels with brilliant combs and feathers, strutted like Aztecs about the rooftops, while from my yard I could hear the incessant throb of guitars being practised in shuttered rooms. They're very much a picture of noise and chaos and lots going on and people scrabbling about for a living. Just a few lines after that, though, complete contrast. He crossed the river back into the main part of Seville, walked along past the Toro de Oro, towards the cathedral and the Giralda, and he finds a completely different atmosphere when he goes inside the cathedral quiet, peaceful and a complete contrast to noisy, bustling Triana Quote, the interior of the cathedral was a bronze half-light a huge cavern of private penance with an occasional old woman hobbling about on her knees mumbling a string of prayers or some transfixed girl standing in a posture of agony arms stretched before the bleeding Christ. If you choose to seek it out, there's quite a lot more about Seville in the chapter, which is entitled To the Sea. You get descriptions of him in the market, and down on the quays, and of the huge array of very particular sorts of people that he met while he was there. Again, I do thoroughly recommend it. My next chosen author is Jason Webster, who wrote a book called Andalus, Described on the back cover as, quote, a quest to discover Spain's hidden Moorish legacy. A book actually quite unlike any other travel book I think I've ever read. The opening chapter is quite different from the rest. Jason Webster is in Spain. I think he's got a degree in Arabic and he's post-graduation and wondering what to do next, I think. And he's come to Spain thinking he might write a book. And he's got the idea of doing something on the Arab legacy or the Moorish history of Spain and he's wondering where to start and he decides to go to a vegetable farm somewhere in Andalusia I'm guessing where lots of illegal immigrants are to be found because i think he's thinking there he will be able to get in touch with some of the people of arabic origin in spain today and maybe start finding out what he wants to know but the first chapter actually reads almost like a thriller because he hasn't been there very long he's trying to talk to the workers who are very nervous about talking to him they know that their employers won't like that and the finish of the story is that he is chased away at gunpoint by the owners. I don't think they want the lid lifted on the exploitative and illegal operation that they're running. So he has to run away. He's helped in this by one of the workers who decides to show him the way out and so the two of them escape and he and the Moroccan worker Zine become friends and the rest of the book is their travel together through many different areas of Spain Webster looking for Arabic heritage, Zine often telling him what's what from his own experience, and it's also about all the people they meet en route. So it is a travel log, it's a book about culture. it's in some respects an autobiography, and it's a book about friendship. At the end, should you wish to pursue your studies at all, there are a couple of useful things. There's a glossary of Arabic terms and cultural references from which you can learn all sorts of things. For example, I learnt that Santiago whom I knew was St. James, also has the nickname Matamoros, which means the Moor Slayer. And secondly, there's a timeline at the back, which gives you the history of Moorish influence in Spain from 622, when the Islamic era began, right up to 1609, when the Moriscos were expelled from Spain. But I don't want it to sound just like a factual book, because it's absolutely far more than that. It's a book from which you can glean all sorts of little cultural insights, one example would be an explanation of how the game of chess came to Spain through Arab culture. An explanation, in fact, that King Alfonso X, Alfonso the Wise, had always been an admirer of Moorish learning, and so he was interested in the game of chess, which the Moors had brought to Europe with them. Jason Webster explains how it was actually an ancient Indian game, adopted by Persians, brought to Spain by the Arabs, and taken up, then, by Alfonso X. Quote, Alfonso wrote the first description of the game in a European language in the 13th century, complete with miniatures, showing players mostly wearing Arab clothes. There's also the links between the two languages. So, for example, in Spanish chess, the bishop is called the alfil, and that comes from the Arabic word for elephant, alfil. Indeed, the word for chess itself in Spanish, ajedrez, comes from the Arabic. It's just a small example, but it's showing how many Ways there are in which this culture is still there in today's Spain. It applies to the buildings too, so here, for example, is Jason Webster explaining how the Giralda had Islamic roots and then was taken over by a Christian king. Quote, we pass the Giralda, brightly lit above the orange trees and droppings from horses ferrying tourists in shiny black carriages. The bell tower and symbol of the city was the Almohad's greatest architectural legacy in Spain, the minaret to the mosque, that had previously stood where now the Christian temple took its place. Sister minarets, in similar style, still stand in Marrakesh and Rabat, thick and square, with geometric patterns in brickwork creeping up its sides. The Christian king Alfonso X, or Alfonso the Wise, when still a prince conquering the city for his father, Ferdinand III, had saved the tower from destruction by Muslims, fearful of it falling into Christian hands. Again and again he finds interweaving patterns between things Islamic and things Christian. For example, he notes that the Easter festival has lots of links with the Shiite Ashura festival, which comes originally from Iran and Iraq. He explains that there's much more Sunni influence, in fact, in Andalusia. But even so, The similarities between Holy Week and Ashura are striking. The death of a holy man, Imam Hussein, in the case of the Shiites, was marked by massive processions and public displays of weeping and self-flagellation. Another Muslim echo in the Spanish Easter festivities was the organisation of the participants into brotherhoods, or hermandades. These cloaked figures with pointed hoods that masked their faces had been the inspiration for the get-up of the Ku Klux Klan, but originated in semi-secret religious societies in Al-Andalus. They still existed in Morocco today, taking part in processions of worship on feast days to local holy sites. So it does explain, when you go and look at some of these processions in southern Spain, it does seem very different from so many other places in Europe. And you are aware that there's a different thread of culture weaving through. And the book which Jason Webster has written is very good at repeatedly finding examples and giving little explanations of all these things. So if you read it, you will end up a lot wiser. I have to say as well, though, I quite like the fact that when he doesn't know, he does say so. So, for example, when he's trying to explain whether there are Arabic roots in flamenco, he writes the following, describing a discussion he's having with friends. Quote, No one's clear about it. That's the problem, Amadeo shouted in my ear. Flamenco is an oral art form, first of all, so there aren't many written records to give us clues. Then it's a mixture of gypsy stuff, Andalusian folk music, and some Moorish stuff as well. It's almost impossible to separate all the different strands. Me explico? Do you see what I mean? Again, a book I can highly recommend if those sorts of cultural intricacies are of interest to you. Let me just finish by quoting something I read on the back of the book jacket. Quote, gripping original. Webster is a totally engaging travelling companion. Sensitive, observant, compassionate, witty and reflective. And my fourth recommendation, a book called Death and the Sun by Edward Levine. It's about his travels around Spain over a year or so, when he followed the famous bullfighter called Francisco Rivera y Perez. He went to 62 fights with this man, saw a 122 bulls being taken on, and it is quite a lot about bullfighting, but it's also about the travel around Spain, the getting to know in much more depth this very important aspect of Spanish culture. The bullfighter, in case you haven't heard of him, does have quite a pedigree He was the son of a famous bullfighter and the grandson of a very famous one, one Antonio Ordonez, who was said to be the greatest matador of his day and was the matador that Hemingway so much admired. And this book is so many things rolled into one. You certainly get the history of bullfighting, anecdotes about famous matadors. You get a lot of detail about things like breeding bulls, the minutiae of fights, exactly what happens and why and when, lots of terminology. You get all the business side and the competitive side about the leaderboards as if it's football in England or something. An explanation of the rather strange things such as the awarding of ears to particular matadors if they've deemed to have done very well in a fight. You get quite graphic descriptions of one or two accidents. You find out all about something called the alternativa, which is a ceremony which I think you could describe as perhaps the christening, in inverted commas, of a new bullfighter, one who's been deemed to have reach the stage where he can be a matador and an older, wiser matador does a public ceremony in the bull ring to welcome him into the profession. Because they're traveling all around the country, you get lots of little asides about places they pass. So, for example, he differentiates the north, which he describes as being damp and green, and the most European area from the centre, which he describes as being full of empty plains, poor farmland and windmills, with the south. Which is quote, Spain of romantic tradition, the Spain of gypsies and flamenco music, of Arab palaces and whitewashed houses, of gazpacho and sherry, and of bulls and bullfights. He has a go at explaining what exactly the pull of bullfighting is. I think many of us are a little bit mystified by that, aren't we? But he puts it like this. The movements that a talented matador makes with his cape are beautiful to watch, even when he is standing alone in his bedroom dressed in sweatpants and a t-shirt. Without a bull, the cape passes of bullfighting are like the steps of a lovely folk dance, but when the charged atmosphere of the ring and the menacing beauty of the bull are added to the dance of the cape, and when the dancer is made to perform under the threat of bodily harm and with the dual aims of controlling a wild animal and then working with it to create something pleasing to the eye, then that is a performance that can inspire a depth of emotion. He goes on to quote other writers. Hemingway, he says, described this feeling as a lump in the throat. For Garcia Lorca it was, man's finest anger, his finest melancholy and his finest grief. And then back to Edward Levine himself. It is an electric mix of fear, pleasure in beauty, sadness, anger, horror, joy, tension, the feeling of victory over death and the viewer's relief that he or she is safe and not facing the bull. You very much feel that he's been watching very carefully and he's trying to really tell it as it is, to just explain what he's seen without being too judgmental about it. You might remember back in the episode on bullfighting, I read out the piece on morality, which he wrote at the beginning of the book saying, Look, I'm describing what I see. It's up to you what you do with that information. Some people will end up as fans of bullfighting. Other people won't like it. I'm just telling you what it is. So here's a little extract about a matador who ended up having a serious accident. It's written not with great drama and excitement, but quite matter-of-factly, really. The bull at this stage has already been injured, so he's quite defensive. And it's become quite clear that it's now up to the matador, Marco, to finish him off. So this is how Edward Levine describes it. He moved to within five feet of the bull, held out his capote, shook it and gave a shout. The bull stood its ground. Its head lulled, its sad eyes stared at Marco in reproach. Marco shuffled towards it a few steps and offered the cape again, and again the bull stood its ground. Finally, Marco got right up in the bull's face and tried one more time. The bull thought for a second and attacked, thrusting its head down, then flicking it up, lancing its horn into Marco's thigh, sending him fifteen feet in the air. This last bit is not poetic license. One second, Francisco Marco was a matador sighting for a pass, and the next he was an indistinct mishmash of limbs flung into the sky. He fell hard and lay like a dropped knapsack on the sand. The bull wheeled and raced at Marco's prone body, its battering ram head lowered to send Marco skyward a second time. And then he goes on to describe how other bullfighters have entered the ring, someone distracts the bull, others drag Marco away. I think he's taken to the emergency treatment room and sent on to hospital after that. He does survive. In between all the episodes in The Bullring, there's a lawful lot of other stuff about just the daily life of life on the road, the grind of travelling from one place to another, driving overnight, being stuck closely together with the same few people in the team. So just to finish then, here's an extract on those lines. Quote, Franz's team of three banderillos, two picadors, two man-servants and a driver travelled in a Mercedes minibus that was a bit taller and wider than the average American van. Most matadors plastered their name, face and web address on the sides of the quadrilla bus, but Franz was painted a plain forest green. It had three rows of seats and storage space in the rear. Each night, after a corrida, Antonio and Pepe loaded up the back of the bus with nine suitcases of everyday clothes, five or six of Fran's bullfighting costumes, another six or eight costumes belonging to the banderillos and picadors, the heavy armour the picadors used to protect their legs from the horns, three bags of heavy capotes, five muletas, the leather case for Fran's swords, and many boxes of banderillas in white and in the red and gold of the Spanish flag. So if you want to get on the inside of the whole bullfighting thing a little bit, this is the book for you. And actually, if you want to make a serious study of it and find out loads more, I can tell you that at the end of the book, there is a bibliography of some 80 or more other books on various aspects of bullfighting. And just to finish then, the fifth author, P.D. Murphy, author of As I Walk Through Spain in Search of Laurie Lee. Definitely a homage to Lee. P.D. Murphy takes the same route, more or less, follows the footsteps and writes about what he sees as he does his own journey, about, if my maths is right, 80 years or so after the original author did. So mixed in, you get references to things that Lee himself wrote, you get facts on Laurie Lee, you get P.D. Murphy's own take on the places that he visited, and it's got some autobiographical parts as well. He's on a journey to leave his past life behind, at least for a bit, and get his thoughts in order. So all of that is mixed in. And it makes for a very interesting read, especially if you come to it after you've read the original, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. OK, so just a little flavour there. And here, for example, is E.D. Murphy describing Andalusia for us. Quote, A land bathed by the waters of the Guadalquivir, whose own golden syllables conjure up a dusty world of 700 years of Moorish rule. Shady frescoed patios with fountains trickling snow melted waters, haremed silk hikes wafting on the occasional breeze, nightingale song damping down the fever of the midday sun. And he too is very conscious of this mix of cultures that goes into everything that he sees and experiences on his trip. So, for example, he describes Andalusia as being a region on the edge, a place where European straight lines taper away into the swirls of African calligraphy. I think that's a wonderful sentence which just sums up that mysterious exotic air that seems to hover over everything in Andalusia and Seville. Okay, so I would highly recommend any of those five authors if you want to lose yourself in reading about Seville and its surroundings. And just before I draw this episode to a close, it's just time to tell you that next week there will be the final episode in the Seville series, which I'm going to call Stories of Seville, in which we're going to have a look at some of the fictional people, like Carmen and Antoine, who are everywhere to be found all over the city, and a look too at authors like Cervantes, who have Seville connections. We'll have a look at the actual stories, a think about what they tell us about Seville, and an indication of one or two places in the city where you can find traces of them, even today. So much then for today. Thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias. And until next time, la próxima vez. Adios. Goodbye.